The downside is if you don't set yourself up for that, you're going to have a problem. Tech debt, disruption, fragility, brittleness. There's a lot of things that will happen to you. And I would rather design what's going to happen for us than let it happen to us. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Ken Grady. Ken, it's a pleasure to have you on, man. Thank you. Good to see you again. Good to be here. Absolutely. Ken, for those of our listeners that don't know, could you tell everyone a little bit about your current role? Sure. Ken Grady, as you mentioned, I actually have a portfolio of responsibilities, as my boss likes to remind me. So I am the CIO, global CIO for IDEX Laboratories. And if you don't know IDEX, if you're not in the veterinary space, it's an animal health and software company north of three point whatever billion dollars on the S&P 500, a remarkable growth company in the veterinary diagnostics and software space, as well as some companion businesses like livestock, poultry, dairy diagnostics, water diagnostics, over 2 billion people a day drink water that was tested by IDEX, for example. So it's a tremendous company. And it's okay if you don't know, because I spent most of my career in human health and pharmaceutical and vaccines and diagnostics development and research before joining IDEX close to nine years ago. I'm also responsible in addition to our enterprise technology ecosystem. I'm also responsible for a reference laboratory, business development, tech ops, and innovation, as well as our bioanalytics business. So it's a really cool, it's very data-driven, it's very software, very interesting space. And I often laugh that I got the job because I think I use most of our products. I have dogs, obviously I have kids that drink water and milk, but I also raise chickens and the occasional pairs of pigs or turkeys, etc. It was ripe. And as a kid, I swear to God, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And I grew up to find this intersection of technology and software and animal health. And it's just a dream come true. The joys of living in Maine, right? And I'm based outside of Portland, Maine at an old farmhouse, as you can see. So yeah, it all just comes together. Yeah, I'm bummed I can't have any pigs here in Brooklyn. uh, (laughs) 
So Ken, we started telling us a little bit about your journey, but maybe you could dive a little deeper into how you started out and how you ended up as the CIO of this global biotech company. Yeah, I've spent most of my career, so I started off studying computer engineering. As I mentioned, I wanted to be a vet, but I very rapidly realized that for whatever reasons, there was a better path for me in technology. And I started off studying computer engineering, Georgia Tech. Anyway, I took a detour out of there into the Army. I entered college early and I wasn't quite ready. So I went to actually be a translator for the military for five years, which was fun. But then I returned after, in 1998, left the Army and moved to San Francisco. That was a very good time to be in technology and actually worked for a few years in high tech. I worked for software development companies of various kinds. And if you're old enough like me, you may remember when the dot-com went boom. And I was turning around and I was actually, I am married to a scientist who was working in life sciences and doing really cool things like vaccines development. She was working on HIV vaccines development and anthrax and like just really cool stuff. And I thought, well, that sounds cool. And so I went to work for a biotech pharma called Chiron, later on became part of Novartis Global Pharma Company working in the oncology and a pharmaceutical vaccine and diagnostics development space, always in IT and technology and data. But I actually really found that I had an affinity in this space and a passion for learning in this space. And the intersection of technology and software and research and life sciences and healthcare has always been something that I just take a lot of energy from. Like it really excites me to think that the work that I do or my team do or my colleagues do are impactful on the health and well-being of those around us. And I can fast forward to some stuff in IDEX where we actually were part of the COVID response. This gave me the opportunity to, I think I've done every job in IT except network engineering. I don't understand what those guys do. I make them speak to me in single syllables and primary colors. Like when they get into like level three switching, I'm like, okay, guys, simplify it for me. But I've done almost every other job in IT, from infrastructure to software development, project management to team leadership. It's given me the chance to really think about the impact of the technology investments that we make on the acceleration of products and services that impact the health and well-being of those of us around us. It's always great to have a leader that's really connected to that mission and is passionate about it. I know that's true for me and working with our clients, a lot of healthcare clients, but even when we work with a financial services client, thinking about the consumers that we're helping or what have you. So that definitely resonates with me. Ken, what would you say was one of the most important things that you learned, important lessons that you learned and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? And that could be personally, professionally. Well, there's probably two or three, but the professionally, the best advice I ever got, I was a young, I don't know, freshly minted leader. I was actually a country CIO for Novartis, which is a fantastic organization, 140,000 employees, global Swiss pharmaceutical I was leading our UK shirt services team or whatever at the time. But I remember then CFO was addressing a group of us IT leaders. And he said, my job as CFO is to make the company investable. 
which I thought was an interesting way to frame it. I never really thought about it before. And a lot of us when I teach kind of grew up working under the auspices of the CFO or whatever. And that's certainly been true at different points, not today, but different points in my career. But anyway, I just thought that was a really interesting, making the company investable. He said, your job as CIO is to make technology investable. And it completely reframed the way that I thought about leading the organization, that everything I did, that everything our team did had to be translatable into impact in a way that people would want to invest more. That's true from everything from managing operations right through into new capability and functionality up to and including the go-to-market strategies for commercial and product development. And technology is, I don't care what industry you're in, software and technology is key to all of those aspects. How do customers get customer service? How does your product report back on its efficiency and efficacy? How do customers get more of it? How do they get their invoice? Every part of that is fueled by technology. And it's never been more clear than over the last few years when we went through the pandemic and lockdown and whatever, again, industry, and we had people that needed to be in work in the labs or in operations or manufacturing. And we had lots of people that needed to work remotely in, in a distributed format. And what kept us all together and moving in the same place was IT, was technology. And we were in a good place and that we had made the investments necessary to keep us connected. But if we ever needed a object lesson and the importance and the, and the nature of work that's driven by software and technology, we've certainly gotten it over the last three years. Yeah, 100%. I think that lesson is true now more than ever as a lot of companies in different industries brace themselves for a potential recession too. One of the themes I heard at one of the conferences I was just at is that, and it was kind of funny to hear the CIOs that on these panels were like, oh, we're not investing in shiny objects anymore. Everything that we look at needs to have ROI. And I was like, kind of, well. That's always been the case. Right. That was like, geez. That's always been the case. Like we always should be focused on ROI and thinking about, is this moving the needle? Do we understand the connection between this investment and the outcomes that we're trying to drive? I don't think there's anything new about that. There are definitely circumstances that lead us to reinforce that message. Absolutely. But I don't think that's ever been different. It's just that the technology layer of our investments these days is more responsible than ever for driving those outcomes. And if there was a time where IT was a back office function, that time is a long gone. We are pretty much a customer facing part of the go to market. I think it just so happens that in the healthcare provider space, in my experience up until recent years, unfortunately, IT was always seen as more of a commodity, a keep the lights on mentality. And COVID pressed the issue of consumerism and everybody jumped on it. But it was like, okay, let's roll out a digital front door and you'd go through the digital front door and then you'd hit a wall and then have to pick up the phone and call someone and then navigate here. It's interesting because I found a lot about this and I think that the phrase digital transformation is overused and doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. But I do think there's 
something in this space. And I recently read a book, I'm listening to some speakers around the digital mindset. And I think what is too often neglected is the connection between the skill sets and the mindset. I did not coin this. This was authors of the digital mindset. I can't remember them, but if you can go out to Amazon, you can find this book. But we implement the tools and the capabilities, but we don't always change the processes and the people's mindsets about how to connect these two things. It's not sufficient to just implement software and, okay, it's solved now. You know, it, you have to bring people along with us. And I think the role of the CIO really has to include a people change management component in order to maximize the value out of that transformation. I didn't agree with you more. I was ready to jump out of my seat as you were talking, as you could see. Because oftentimes we'll be invited into an account and we're disruptive innovations. So we're talking about generative AI, we're talking about this and that, and they'll say, hey, we need AI, we need this, we need that. And we're like, okay, yeah, we can educate you on that. And we also have to look at people, process, methodology, and they push, oftentimes people will push, they're like, no, we just want to look at the technology and it doesn't work that way especially in industries where those other elements from a holistic standpoint have been ignored for many years. You set yourself up for failure, especially with a solution. God forbid you roll out that solution and then nobody uses it. I've been there over the course of my career where I've rolled out a technology solution in the younger days. We roll it out perfectly, or so we think, and nobody uses it. It just sits there like a bump on a log. And the project is seen as a failure because... It is. I had an epiphany, COVID-related epiphany, and not because I got COVID, although I did at one point, but I was fully vaccinated. I still got it. But anyway, early days, COVID, the first few months of COVID, we all went home March 13th, 2020. That was the date. Anyway, we all became like really adept at using these tools. And we're a team shop and we have WebExes, but we're a big team shop. And my CEO is like, oh my God, why did you never tell me about teams? He's like, I love it. It's like, we've deployed it for over a year now. You just never had reason to use it. And, but it was this enforced change management that we all went through across industries, whatever tool you happen to use, but it was a new way of working. Actually, at the time, another one of my colleagues, our CHRO, had said, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to have a global pandemic to increase adoption of the technologies that we've invested in? And I was like, yeah, that would be really great. And actually... One of the takeaways from that was I created a change management role, actually a team within my organization to accelerate the adoption of technologies we were deploying systematically, very programmatically, and taking learnings from other functions. In fact, the person I put in that role is a former marketer because we need to market the value to different personas, et cetera. But this is something that, again, the people-oriented aspect of change is so often overlooked in our roles. Another example, another more recent example, you mentioned AI. I used to keep a squirt model. Then I would squirt anybody at the meeting that would say, AI is the solution, I'd just squirt them. <laughs> oh man, I gotta start bringing that around with me. I love that idea. <laughs> right, because it was like, we'll just do AI, it'll be great. I'm like, oh, okay, hang on. But recently, in current, the conversation around generative AI, chat GPT or other generative large language model tools is real. And we should be having that conversation. But I've had suggestions or heard conversations to say, well, what we'll do is we'll create an AI center of excellence. 
okay, I'm not saying that's wrong, but we don't have an Excel center of excellence because the technology is becoming ubiquitous. And our role as technology leaders are to help people understand the right ways or the most effective ways to deploy these technologies, not to contain them, but effectively deploy them and safely deploy them. And there are real considerations within that space. But to think that like, oh, there's a rarefied few within your company that are going to have access to these tools that we don't understand. The reality is that was true a few years ago in this particular AI neural net generative, whatever you want to like, whichever flavor you want to take. It's less and less true. It's software. It's embedded in the platforms that we use and deploy. And we need to be good stewards and shepherds for how the organization thinks about leveraging them within the day-to-day. And that's tough. It's a very interesting world we live in that space. I think that you need to start with the, just like anything in our world, like you start with the goal or the problem and then work backwards to see how these solutions can kind of fit into things versus just it being, here's the technology, let's try to fit it in somewhere. Like, for example, like when I think of a company like yours, I think of the knowledge management use case, which I think is one of the, you know, will have a huge impact, is already having a huge impact, particularly because it's not, since it's not consumer facing, right? I mean, the risks of it, letting it out in the wild are kind of a little less substantial and just what you can do with document evaluation and then indexing and Things that would have taken years before can now be done in a month. An even more basic example, I was actually talking to another CIO who had done some work on this, but if I just take every help desk case, and every one of us, whatever industry you're in, we have a help desk. We could insource it, we could outsource it, whatever your model that we insource, but whatever model you have, I got users with laptops, they got problems. Okay, what if I just feed the problem into a generative AI solution, ChatGPT, and say, what do you think I should do with this? And okay, it's easy to make a joke and say, look, I don't need AI to say, turn it off and turn it on again. But the reality is, actually in talking to this colleague or counterpart, he said, oh no, we improved our help desk efficiency, like new employee, because we hire people in the help desk and it takes time to get them up to speed and for them to build in the knowledge of, oh, that probably sounds like this other thing. We improved by 90%. That's amazing. If I can actually improve the efficiency and the speed at which I get my team up to a level of expertise by almost twofold, that's a huge efficiency. And that's not taking anything away because I hear this worry about people saying, well, that's, oh my God, it's going to replace me. It's going to mean you can take on twice the work without twice the effort. That's pretty cool. Like I can grow the company to 2x without taking on 2x the effort. I like that. That's the way to approach it is to think about how is it a tool within our tool belt to help us do our work more effectively. And you could, again, translate that use case into others and by industry, et cetera. Absolutely. I think that we're just at the, just at the beginning of realizing what we can do with this. The key is the 
training it on computationally on the data pertinent to a given organization and putting the rules in place where, so when I go to place a ticket, and if I were to ask something offensive, that ChatGPT isn't responding to me in full with a retort. Oh, these are the things that we need to absolutely be conscious of, the biases, et cetera. I've seen a lot of examples out there of platforms introducing these capabilities. And again, a lot of it is said by the information you allow it to consume. And so this is where I think our roles as leaders is to guide this. Tremendous capability, also tremendous responsibility for thinking about how we leverage it appropriately in this next stage. I appreciate your insight on that. I know we are talking about people, right? And the role of people in technology. Talked about COVID, lockdown. I mean, you're leading a global team. How else did you promote or bring your team together and promote leadership topics during that time and on an ongoing basis in an asynchronous manner? Are there any best practices or anything that you've done that you'd recommend to other leaders? Yeah, it was interesting because pre-COVID, it wasn't different in a way. So I lead a global organization of several hundred people, and I have people in Brazil and Australia and Japan and Germany and the Netherlands and China, et cetera. So like, I've always led a global organization. What I realized during COVID was, again, it was always a distributed organization. We just weren't very good at it. And what happened was almost accidental. So as I mentioned, March 13, 2020, we all go home and then we decide not to come back. And we're protecting the people that needed to come back and we're figuring this out. And fortunately, we had made the investments in the technology ecosystem over the preceding years to allow us to do this. And there's a lot to that as well. And we looked like geniuses. We looked like we were planning for a global pandemic. It's not true, but we had other reasons why this was an important part of our ecosystem. But it was still scary. It was scary. It was white knuckle. I mean, take yourself back three years. Like We did not know. And at the end of that first week, I just said, I need to talk to my team. As I mentioned, I have kids. My kids are at this point 20 and 15, but by that point, minus three. And they had introduced me to TikTok. Okay. So what I did was I took my phone and I pointed it at my face and I recorded a video, which basically was like 10 minutes of, we're going to get through this. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what we've learned. And then the next week, and I published it, we used, we're a big Microsoft shop, so I use Stream and kind of internal YouTube, if you don't know it. Anyway, and then the next week I did it again. And every week for the last three years, with one or two exceptions, but I've done the same thing. It was a really fascinating response because the platform allows for comments and it allows for, to your point, asynchronous dialogue. And it gives me a chance to, and it was very interesting for me as a leader because prior to that, the feedback I would get was, and it was interesting, there's a formality to me. And you're like, Ken's very formal. And I was like, do you know me? I play the banjo, like literally, hang on. I play the banjo, like I have multiple banjos. I am not very formal, but I am a very process-oriented leader. And I think that led to this perception. But suddenly, people actually got an insight, because sometimes I would record that video while cooking lunch. Sometimes my kids would walk in or my dogs would walk in and there was this connection that was created at every level. And it was a really effective 
tool. Fast forward 18 months, 12 months, I don't know, sometime, but I said, look, and actually, as it happened for our industry, so animal health, companion animals. So one of the effects of COVID, because we're all home, is we all decided to get pets. And I got one too. I got a new dog during COVID. So actually, the animal health industry grew faster during COVID, which we did not know, but it happened. So we were still hiring. We're still hiring. We're still growing as a company, right, during COVID. We took the first few months to go, and then we were like, oh, wow. And so I'm still investing. And so I took the same platform and I actually turned it externally because I said one of the ways that I used to communicate and build brand reputation and build awareness, because I'm hiring Java developers and data engineers and quality engineers and you know SAP and like all the same stuff everybody else is hiring, but I'm IDEX, I'm not Spotify and I'm not Facebook. And so how do I compete in the global market? There's two aspects of this that became very interesting. One was I took the same platform and I started recording shorts on LinkedIn to create awareness so that when we were recruiting, people could actually learn who IDEX was, who the readership was, and how we work. And that became, that was my intention. I got very good feedback. I also got very good feedback internally. My own organization outside of IT saw that and really appreciated the connection with a senior leader in a new way because we weren't all in the headquarters together. And so that was really remarkable. The second aspect of what happened was we leaned into, oh, we've always been distributed, and now none of us are going into the office. So it doesn't really matter where you work. Don't get me wrong, time zones are a pain in the ass. It's hard to get around the speed of light. But we leaned into a deliberately distributed organization, and I've talked about managing as a distributed leader. What does it take? But here's some interesting stuff that happened along the way. Because I was started saying, I don't care where you hire the next logistics solution specialist or the next transportation management specialist or the next Java developer or enterprise architect or whatever. As long as they're marketing, IT, whatever. As long as they can do the job, cool. Because none of us are in the office. Who cares? So then I started looking at the data deeper. In my hires before 2019, 2020, that time period, like the rest of the industry, in IT, you may or you probably have an appreciation of this, but we have a gender imbalance in IT. I think the industry average, in, at least in the US or North America, is one in four. Interestingly, my daughter is studying cybersecurity, so she's helping to address the balance. I think we were a little better than the average. We were like one in three. I felt good about that, but it felt like we could do better. Since 2021, 56% of my hires are female. That was not the problem I set out to solve. But I believe, I have a hypothesis that my deliberately distributed model and leaning into this has created a work-life flexibility and balance that has allowed us to attract a different demographic of talent. Because if you're not spending, I don't know, 90 minutes, two hours a day in the car, you know, commuting back and forth, your life is different and our support is different. And again, I'm just, I looked at this and leaned into this and I've said, coming out of COVID, Coming out of the pandemic days, yeah, there's some stuff that I want to keep. And that's certainly one. It's leading to a more positive outcome. Actually, and I told you I was going to mention this. About a year ago, I got together with a buddy of mine and I said, I think that as leaders, not as CIOs certainly, but as leaders in general, business leaders, I don't want to let go of the learnings in the last couple of years. And 
he and I have been talking about this. He's a leadership coach, a communications coach. He's great. He's worked a lot with my team. His name is Seth Rigoletti, also Portland-based. And he and I talk about this stuff all the time. And I told him, I said, I want to hit record on this and do what you did, basically, David, which is, I was like, I want to podcast. I want to record our thoughts. And so we did. We launched a podcast called It's Not Personal. And there's a whole explanation behind the name of It's Not Personal. And it's about removing your own ego from leadership and putting humanity, like people, at the center of your job as a leader. If you can go to itsnotpersonal.net, you can Google It's Not Personal or go to Spotify or wherever you get your podcast content and you can go listen to episodes of It's Not Personal. We had one season and we are just in the process of releasing our second. It's a leadership podcast, not a technology podcast, but it was really an evolution of coming out of COVID and thinking differently about what it means to lead today versus what it used to be. Love that. And I thought this podcast when I started out was going to be like a tech podcast, but honestly, a lot of the conversations have been centered around leadership topics. And I think because I'm passionate about it too, my personal development, I have a business coach, I have a therapist, I've done a lot of workshops, a lot of business accreditations, et cetera, and ego, oh my God. That was something that I had to arrive at myself, like in regard to leaving that at the door. But what I did, it just, and not only in at work, just everywhere in my life, I'm just another steward. I know what I know, and there's a lot that I don't know. And I'll share my experience and just showing up in that way just made a profound difference in my life. So just the fact that you mentioned that oh, it's makes a lot of sense. I love that you shared that, man, because I really do. You asked me for like, what was the moment? And here's another moment where I had, oh God, how often do you show up in the C-suite and you want to get your agenda across? You want to get your point across? You want to get your priority across? But if you can check your ego at the door and realize that this meeting may not be about you and the reactions of your colleagues maybe something completely different. And if you can check your ego, and I think, I think it's not unique to the role of CIO or CDO or CTO or whatever the, whichever brand or flavor your organization follows. But, and this really inspired the second season of the podcast, which is all about, as I mentioned, being a subversive leader. Because the reality, and by the way, it was Seth, my co-conspirator that told me I was being subversive. And I actually took that as a negative. And then I thought, no, you know what? No, I totally am. Because what I'm trying to do is influence the outcome here by demonstrating what it could look like if we went this path versus that path, which is very subversive. But many of us are in the role where we can't just dictate the outcome. And so this is where back to the people-based leadership, we have to really understand the motivations, the fears, and the aspirations of the people we work with on our teams or in our colleagues, in our customers, in order to create the path towards the outcome we're looking for. By the way, I didn't mention technology at all in that because it turns out everything we do is about people. So that's core of it. And we have to check our ego at the door to do that successfully, I believe. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I always... I'm the biggest proponent of the need for, if you want to be a company that is truly innovative, it often requires a cultural shift 
It starts at the top. And it involves that kind of way of being. Or maybe certain people have certain flavors to it, but in a general sense where you are connecting with your colleagues in that manner and you're letting them be open and vulnerable and because that allows them to feel like they can fail and do so in such a way with feedback loops and in a controlled manner where you can integrate feedback and keep moving because that is how we innovate and if you're in a place where you don't feel that connection to the leader and with an organization like yours where there's many layers of management between you and maybe a this person, that's why it's even more important ever than for that to exfiltrate down the organization and those kind of values to be more than just words on a wall. It's for them to show up in action, right? Which is why, and again, it wasn't intentional and it's not like I had a master plan, but just why going back to the method that I chose of creating a weekly video was saying and creating a personal connection, like I'm just a human too created a psychological safety for the organization to actually speak up. And my team is so, they know, they're tired of hearing me say it. I say it all the time, never waste a crisis. So when something goes wrong, and something, look, it's Murphy, it's technology, something's going to go wrong. And we do everything we can to ensure that it doesn't and really address operational resilience and take advantage of all the things, you know, from a cloud But stuff still goes wrong. And my refrain is always never waste a crisis. And that says two things. One is what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this? What are we taking forward? Two is so that we can actually address something. It's like, oh, let's never let that happen again. But two is it also says it's okay for you to say what went wrong. It's okay for you to name it so that we can learn from it. And that is, I'm never going to punish somebody for something going wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. If there's an intentional screw up, of course, it's a process. But when something happens, what did we learn from it? How do we carry that forward? It just creates the safety of a speak up. Let's talk about it. Let's name it. Let's lay it out on the table and dissect it. Because I am not the smartest person in the room. So if you expect me to have all the answers as to what went wrong and how do we fix it, I told you I can't name any network stuff. So I rely on my team to help inform us as to how we get better. And that I think that's important. It's an important message as a leader. 100%. In fact, I'm going to take that kind of video sharing, that asynchronous kind of leadership message to some of my clients and tell them to start doing that because... Share some wings. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So I want to get into, Ken, a little bit more about what you guys are up to at IDEX. Before we do, I always like to ask favorite book or literary piece either that you're reading in recent months or all-time dealer's choice? I'll give you three answers. So one is a book I just read called Remote Not Distant, and it's very much about this distributed organization. How do you stay connected? How do you create this culture of connectedness? I cannot remember the author offhand, but that's good. I've already mentioned my favorite podcast, which is No Stupid Questions, part of the Freakonomics Network. I love everything by Stephen Dubner, so that's a good one. And three is I have totally been binge watching The Diplomat on Netflix, which is completely unrelated, but fantastic content. There's my three answers real quick. Love it. Okay. So chief information officer with lots of other responsibilities at this global brand IDEX, what is your 
vision for IT and digital as is derived from the overall mission of the organization? And what are some key initiatives that you guys are working on with an understanding that you can't share anything proprietary? All the secret sauce. So IDEX's mission, from a diagnostics perspective, think about it when you take your dog or your cat into the vet, you want to make sure they're healthy. I often laugh because when you take your dog into the vet, if you own a dog, they ask you to bring in the poop, we get the poop. And it really pleases my inner 12-year-old that I get to talk about poop a lot and get paid for it. That's awesome. But honestly, diagnostics is about data. It's about giving your pet a voice. Because your pet can't tell you, like, I don't feel well today. And so it shows up in the blood work, chemistry, the urine, the fecal, all of these pieces. And we empower the veterinarian to give you answers about your pet, which is increasingly a part of your family. When I grew up, we had a dog, and the dog lived in a dog house in a fenced area of the backyard. And I have two dogs today. I have a St. Bernard named Frank and an old English sheepdog named George. They're both female. Their pronouns are she and her. It's Francesca and Georgina, and they sleep in our bedroom, right? They're really important members of our family. The fact that I can rely on and can have a relationship with my veterinarian to help me understand how to take the best care I can of them, it's tremendous. And I mentioned livestock and the food supply and dairy, et cetera, like the other parts of our business. It's really tremendous. And software and technology allows us to give the clinicians, the veterinarians, et cetera, a more rapid, near real-time answer to really important questions. And I'll just go back to, and this was this weird intersection of my responsibilities, but early days of COVID. At this point, maybe we didn't all understand what PCR testing was before. And actually, one of my weekly videos, I actually sat down and explained what PCR was to my team, because in my last job, I was CIO of New England Biolabs, so biotech makes the stuff you use to cut DNA up and put it back together again and do other stuff with it. I had actually run PCR in the lab. And anyway, early days, we couldn't get enough testing. Remember that? I can cut like 2020, there was not enough testing to go around. So INEC actually partnered with several organizations, including the state of Maine, where we're headquartered, to help supplement and augment the testing capacity. So we ran the PCR lab for the state of Maine, essentially, in partnership. And it was part of my team, part of my reference labs, part of the team, because it's all about providing answers. And I think this is, from a healthcare life sciences perspective broadly, increasingly going to be how we scale. How do we make it cheaper and faster to deploy solutions? Because it's all data-driven. And yeah, I can't go into all of the things that we're doing from an AI and et cetera. But if you look at, for example, I'll give you two of the things that we lost you know, in the past few years. One is a hematology connected device called our ProType platform, which allows veterinarians to test the blood at the, point of, at the clinic and deliver real-time results. And what we do from an IT perspective was we also make sure that the veterinarian never runs out of the supplies that they need to because we know what they used and we can help make sure that they have what they need. So it's connected to our supply chain, it's connected to our invoicing, it's connected from a full ecosystem. And that's what software allows us to do, is connect the full ecosystem for a complete solution. So it's just, it's one of the reasons that I love being a CIO is because we work with every part of the business. 
with supply chain, with the product, with the customer, with finance, with HR, every part of the organization is connected through software. And I think that's going to continue to enable us to do things more effectively and efficiently over time and intelligently at scale. Like this is the thing that we do. So I see it everywhere I look across the organization. I love that example of the blood testing on site because it shows the connectedness that you've woven. I don't think that's a given for all organizations. And it's just impressive what you guys have been able to create. What about some of the biggest challenges that you guys have faced? Obviously, we had COVID, but even in, in the recent year or so, what have been some of the biggest challenges? I think it's nice that FIDO doesn't care as much about data privacy as humans do. But security and privacy are key for any organization, any digital organization, and we're all digital organizations, you're all out the door, has to be aware of these aspects and thinking about these solutions in a way that allows us to ensure resilience at scale, et cetera. I think that's definitely something that like the world is not less complicated than it used to be, right? It's more. And so I think that we all need to continue to up our game in this front. And the bad guys didn't take time off for COVID. So we can never let our eye off the ball on that front. Talk about talent and engagement. And I just think we have to challenge ourselves to think differently about that. I think there's tremendous upside in that. But I think if we don't think that way, we're going to be challenged. How do we hire? How do we engage? So for sure, technology, like day one in my job at my current role at IDEX, they told me I had to get up on stage and talk to the team. Okay. Talk about like what. I don't know, whatever the vision was. I was like, I don't even know where the bathrooms are yet, but sure. Okay. I said, look, one thing I'll guarantee you, and I forget everything I said, but one thing I remember that I said was, whatever you're working on today, three years from now, you'll be working on something different. And that scared my SAP team. It's like, look, no, 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 I'm not saying we're going to migrate our ERP. But the projects and the context will change. And in some cases, the technology will change and evolve. And what's great about knowing that is that we can design for change. And that's a mindset back to this concept of mindsets and skill sets. Like we can actually design for that so that we can embrace it. And we see this in so many areas, big data, et cetera. The capabilities are evolving so quickly. We have to position ourselves to be able to take advantage of it without breaking everything that we've done before and then to do it again. And then to do it again. And if we can embrace that mindset, we can be ready for that. That's not the IT that I grew up in. Honestly, I've been doing this for a long time. We couldn't do that in 2000, but we can't now if we do it intentionally. The downside is if you don't set yourself up for that, you're going to have a problem. Tech debt, disruption, fragility brittleness. There's a lot of things that will happen to you. And I would rather design what's going to happen for us than let it happen to us. And it's been a refrain that I've had over the last few years. Uh, it's this enterprise architecture, domain-driven design, highly competitized, really techie stuff. But what it does is it leads to a whole different outcome. 100%. So Ken, we're almost out of time here. Last couple questions. One would be, and it's funny, I, we just, I was just talking to the CIO of another large 
pharma companies are different, but where do you see the life sciences industry going in the future and or what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? I think the life sciences industry, particularly the human healthcare side, has been rightly slow to adopt some of the latest in terms of capabilities. And that's because of the needs for privacy protection, et cetera. And I'm a big believer in that regulation, by the way, having worked for more than 20 years in human health, I totally understand it. But I think we can do it. And the example I always used to give is, look, I could put my ATM card into a ATM in, I don't know, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and enter my code, and I can get out the right currency out of my account, translated into whatever the local currency is, and I have no idea what the Mongolian currency is, but and have a high degree of confidence that it was right and secure. Okay, we can solve this problem. That problem is very addressable through technology. Great. How are we going to do that? Now, the challenge we have, at least in the US, and I used to live in England and overseas, the challenge we have in the US is a fragmented ecosystem. And so how do we address this? But I think we're migrating that way. It may be slow, but we're migrating that way in the same way that we've addressed, for example, the financial system example I just used, like the banking system. So I think it's a solvable problem through technology, but technology and regulation have to come together in this. And that's going to be an interesting continued evolution. But I think the technology is there. Like I said, this is, I think it is in a way that it wasn't even five years ago, the technology is there in a way that it wasn't. And so I'm really interested to see where this goes, quite frankly, because I think- Me too. Yeah. And then you get into the diagnostic capability, the treatment capability, the personalized medicine at scale. Look, I'm going to say my wife, she had breast cancer a few years ago, and she would not have caught it as early and been as survivable if we didn't have the technology and the genetic screening that we do today. And so again, this is a software-enabled healthcare outcome that led her to the best possible care and long-term prognosis. And that's, um, I'm thankful every day. And so I think that I look at these, where this, these things are coming, and then there's just a whole host of things out there from a lot of scientists side that are data-driven, but I've never been more optimistic about what the future holds than I am today. I've never been happier to be in the role that I am. Super cool. And I'm so glad to hear about your wife's prognosis being super positive. So we're wrapping up here. The final question I would have for you would be, if you could go back 5, 10, 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I'll tie it back to a little bit of what we talked about earlier. I think that at some point in your mid-management, lower, early management career, you think there's a template for what leadership looks like. And I think that's not true at all. I think and again, I'll take it out of COVID, like over the last few years, my leadership style and my connection and my et cetera, I don't think it was that different beforehand, but I don't think it was as transparent, I guess, is the word as to what it was that I was worried about. Oh, I think there's a thought that like leaders have all the answers. If that's true, I did not get that handout. And I would really like somebody to send me a copy of that handout. But Trust in your team, trust in your, and not that I didn't trust in my team, but I think I wasn't 
honest about what I was worried about, what I was concerned about, as ready to ask the question or rely on them. That's the piece that I think that the more, I don't know, the more years go by or the more responsibility I get, the more recognition I have that I work with great, I always knew I worked with great people, but like the delegation, the opportunity to draw on them, gosh, don't hesitate. I think that was the thing that I thought as a young manager or leader that I was promoted to this role because I was supposed to have all the answers. And no, you're promoted to that role because you're supposed to know who to ask the questions of. That's the key. As a leader, you were never going to know all the answers, but you're going to know who to ask the question of. And that's, I think, something you can't learn soon enough. Great advice. My mom always used to say, she always hires people that are smarter than her for that exact reason. Because her job is to touch, move, inspire those around her and then ask them the questions. So great advice. Ken, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. This was fantastic. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. And in the interim, be well, take care of one another. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.